it's it's like actually a little bit less dangerous than you'd think. Most of the time, everything works out. We basically made like these jousting poles that were like a boxing glove over the end of like a painter's uh, pole with like a yoga mat wrapped around it. And, you know, and it, it, nobody actually ever got actually impaled. And uh, a couple of times people got ran over by like segues, but really they're not that heavy. And so everything's fine. Welcome to the Pressnomics Podcast, where you'll hear from thought leaders in the WordPress ecosystem and beyond as we deconstruct powerful ideas that can help you in business and in life. Now, here's your host, Sean Tierney. All right, welcome everybody to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Tierney, and I am here today with Mike Roberts. Mike is founder and CEO of SpyFu. SpyFu highlights new opportunities for search marketers by exposing the marketing secret formula of their most successful competitors. Uh, in a former life, Mike was a software consultant serving such clients as Pinnacle West, Wells Fargo, Charles Schwab, Meritage Homes, Pulte Homes, JDA, Microsoft, and a ton of big names you probably have heard of. Uh, Mike is also a world-renowned Segway jouster, and we'll get into that a little bit towards the end. Uh, I actually was, uh, I can vouch for this personally as being one of his uh, vanquished prey, I guess you could say. Um, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. That's, a, that's an amazing intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll save, this is the cliffhanger, we'll save the Segway jousting until the very end. Awesome. Um, but I want to I, I just give some people some context. We met uh, just through the Phoenix you know, software startup scene back in the day. Uh, I now am in Lisbon. You're are, you're at your beach house, I believe you said? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. I'm in Oceanside right now. Oceanside. Cool. Um, so yeah, we are doing this interview virtually here. Um, let's just dig right into it. Like, Mike, what is SpyFu? Can you tell us what, what that is and what it does? Yeah, yeah. You can go to uh, spyfu.com and type in any website and see every keyword that they've ever bought on Google, um, all the ads that they've ever run, every organic ranking that they have, um, and you know all, all of the stuff about their sort of search engine marketing. Um, uh, and, and the idea is that you can learn from your competitors without having to... Uh, uh, without having to suffer through the same mistakes that they've made, you take what they've done and 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 kind of build on it. Nice. And so it's just like this superpower, almost like an X-ray vision, being able to kind of look into what's worked for other people, so you don't have to you know waste all those cycles making the same mistakes they did. Sounds like that's right. Like I mean, ultimately, people spend millions of dollars, uh, sometimes millions of dollars a day, on on testing things and and uh, and and building a a really great campaign. And, uh, and so you can kind of learn from those tests, uh, and, uh, without having to spend the money yourself. Nice. And this business, so you started this 13 years ago? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, well, let's see, it's 2019. And I believe actually, um, the, the original version of what is now SpyFu was called Goog Spy. Uh, and that was launched in like 2005. So I guess it's been 14 years. But SpyFu as itself um, was, uh, you know, it has been around for 13 years. We launched that in 2006. Nice. I mean, that's that is a heck of a run. I don't even know if it qualifies as a startup anymore. That like that's like a full on real deal business. So congrats on that run. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so you are a speaker at Pressnomics, and your talk is about basically being entirely bootstrapped. That's like, right. So you never you, you never raised any money for this venture. 
No, like I started with like three thousand uh, dollars in my bank account. I kind of I, I I'm basically like definitely a hundred percent bootstrapped. And uh, and what's interesting is that wasn't necessarily my intent in the beginning. Um, and so one of the things that I talk about is is just you know I sort of was like, well, you know, let me just let me just build the product first, and then you know, and then I was like, well, let's you know, let's launch it before we like try to raise money. And, and I just kind of kept putting off raising money. Uh, and, you know, because the idea is like, well, you know, maybe at, a, at each additional phase, you know, you can like raise more. And, um, and so that sort of <laughs> wisdom of procrastination, I suppose, um, led me to like the understanding that, um, that, that really I didn't need anybody else's money and that there was a lot of, a lot of benefits. Uh, and, and I didn't really learn about all of the pitfalls of, of taking other people's money, uh, except for, you know, by being involved in other people's businesses and, and understanding other people's experiences. And had you, you said you kind of put it off, put it off. Had you initially, when you started that business, had you foreseen someday taking money and you just kind of arrived at the point where you never needed to, or did you consciously start it with the intent of never raising money? So my first venture into, into like, you know, into, into software was like, like, like 1999. Right. And, uh, and so I had an idea. It wasn't, it was, it was actually pretty pretty decent idea. Um, but my, uh, but like kind of, uh, uh, what everybody says, and then this is something that everybody still says is that, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta raise money. You gotta, um, you know, uh, go out there and, uh, you know, do some, get, create a pitch deck and do the whole thing. And, uh, and so I spent an, uh, like way more time focused on trying to raise capital. And of course I'm like 19 years old, you know, and no, no, there's nobody's going to give me any money. You know, it's like, I mean, maybe they will. It was like 1999, just sort of pre the, during the dot com bubble. I'm, I probably could have raised money, but, but I, there's a lot of things uh, against it. Um, and, uh, but I, I spent probably six months pursuing that where what I should have done is just built something and, you know, see what happened. Right. And, and that's, um, and that's what I basically did when I did my second venture, which was VelociScape, which ultimately became, you know, uh, about five hundred thousand dollars in in revenue. And that became uh, eventually we sort of continued building um, from that and built built SpyFu. And you know, SpyFu is like an eight million dollar company. So it's you know, it's it's one of those sort of iterative things. Um, but I think I did intend. To, to raise capital or, or whatever. Um, but, uh, but I just kept putting it off. Nice. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, I don't know if you remember, we did a company called Jumpbox uh, mm -hmm. back in the day that was like 2006. And we spent an inordinate amount of time, like you're saying, just the VC roadshow thing sucked mm -hmm. up so much of our time. And it was such a distraction from the core business that it nearly killed the company. And it really required when that didn't work out, uh, it was 2008 when the whole Lehman brothers, you know, yeah. shit hit the fan there. So we, uh, at that time had to fork, you know, focus back on the business and get to profitability and really make grind to make that work. And, uh, it was just, it, we're, it was lucky that it didn't kill us because the fundraising, once you start going down that path, it really sucks a lot of the time up and, uh, it really doesn't yield anything if you don't raise the money then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then what it does yield is like, is like, it's pretty good, but it, it's not the same thing as having, 
having like recurring revenue coming in. You know what I mean? Like, like let's say you raise a million bucks. Well, if you could get to, you know, $83,000 in MRR, then you're, you basically have a million dollars coming in every year, Uh, you know? So, and, and like, it's kind of like so much more worth it to go after that revenue, building those, nurturing those customers, building a better product. Um, and, And it just kind of pays dividends. Right. And you're not giving up equity at that point and you're not taking now, you know, instructions from other people. And so that's great. Yeah. And I mean, like from a life quality perspective, like the, the entrepreneurship thing, it can be an expression of your values and of yourself. And, um, and it can also be like, a, I mean, I think of it as, you know, as just part of who I am, right? Like, and so the experience and the process of going through it and, um, and learning about what works, um, you know, from a leadership perspective and from a marketing perspective, um, I, I, like you just can't, you know, who cares whether it takes a little bit longer? It's, it's all yeah. basically, it's part of you. Yeah, exactly. I, well, I've long thought of companies as really just like instruments for amplifying whatever effect it is you want to have on the world. You can have mm-hmm. far more of it through an organization. And so I'm hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. If, if, if raising money is then going to somehow compromise whatever your original goal was, then that is counterproductive for sure. And I think it kind of has to, because you're, you're, you're not likely to be in alignment. Right. And like in my presentation, I talk about like, basically, right. Like there's, uh, there's, there's really only, you know, a, 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 a small number of paths that the venture funded, you know, startup can go through and, and sort of the markets that they can pursue. And there's like a, um, you know, like 95% of the paths are not available to you. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I, I like really enjoy the ability to make decisions, um, based on my values and our mission and, uh, and, you know, and, and I'm able to make mistakes and, you know, learn from them and, and not, you know, not really yeah. suffer real consequence or, or the consequences that I suffer are super real. <laughs> it's <laughs> very, very real, but, um, but I don't have anybody else to answer to. So I just, I, I can just kind of, you know, keep those lessons, um, for myself. Yeah. It really and share them with others. When you say it that way, it's interesting because it, it, it both, it cuts both ways, right? It's sh- taking that money, taking VC money, both shields you from a bunch of stuff that is going to surface at some point anyway. So it's just like kind of, you know, deferring that learning until you actually bump into it and feel the pain associated with it. But then it's also subjecting you to all kinds of other stressors and uh, issues there. So it's, that's a, that's an effect that actually I hadn't thought of much is that kind of insulating you from stuff that you would, you know, bump into sooner just by virtue of having to not have that, that money, that buffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it forces you to think a little bit more strategically as well. And, uh, and you really have to prioritize, right? If you think about me sitting in my house, um, like, you know, with like $3,000 in my bank account trying to launch like this, uh, this, this other software business that I had, ultimately, I had to like, 
I was like basically learning how to do like AdWords, Google AdWords, right? This is like the origin story of SpyFu. I was marketing another product uh, that was called Web Scraper Plus, and it would take data off of a website and put it into a spreadsheet or database. Mm-hmm. Um, and what uh, what the problem was, or what I what I found was uh, by accident was that. Well, the way that I would describe, because I'm a nerd, the way that I would describe what uh, what Web Scraper Plus did, I called it um, web data extraction. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that nobody else really called it that. They called it screen scraping or web scraping. And this was actually before I changed the name to Web Scraper Plus. Uh, it was called Providus, which is a horrible name. And I can <laughs> totally tell you all reasons why Providus is an awful name. But, uh, but I learned just by accident... That people that that the majority of people called it web scraping or screen scraping, and I kind of thought, well, that's like that's like you know almost an insulting way to describe my glorious product. Data web data extraction is technically more correct, uh, <laughs> but when I when I when I embraced the way that people actually did do these searches and how they actually call what they called the product, what the consumers called the product. Um, I got, I, I literally tripled my revenue in like in a month. And, um, and so I ended up renaming the product to it and, and doubling down on that kind of thing ended up like doubling my revenue again. And so I really wanted to figure out if there were some other blind spots that I had where there, you know, cause I had some competitors and I wondered whether or not they had stumbled upon some other, you know, good ways to describe the product that I hadn't thought of. And that's actually ultimately why I made SpyFu. So I guess the lesson is that, is that by being forced to like, you know, really think hard at these, like, you know, when every, every, when every decision that you're making um, is, is a little bit more important because it can mean you have to like go back to work or whatever. Um, I I think, I think that, I think that things become more real and you become, you know, sort of smarter and wiser in the, in the process. Yeah. Well, this is in yet another benefit. Like you're saying the whole constraints breed creativity, like yeah. in scratching your own itch in the, the search, you know, building that product and marketing that product, you actually created something that ended up being the real product, uh, mm-hmm. which is just amazing. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about for people that are unfamiliar with the dynamics of how it works, you know, with VCs and portfolios and, just, you know, looking for that 100x unicorn and ten, 10 fail, one works. Can you just talk a bit about those dynamics and how that is? It's not necessarily adverse incentives, but it's not aligned to like the entrepreneur. Right. So, so you as the entrepreneur uh, starting out, um, probably, you know, you might think to yourself, you know, it's a pretty good exit, like anywhere in like sort of like, I don't know. I think that when I was starting out, I was like, you know, I would be pretty down with making a, taking a $2 million exit. That'd be pretty cool. Um, I might have even thought like a $500,000 exit is pretty good. Um, certainly everybody I think would agree that a 10, 20, 30, $40 million exit is a good exit, especially if you're the entrepreneur. Um, but that's basically not a good exit. It's not something that you can pursue as a venture backed uh, business, right? You have to aim for, at, you know, I think no less than a hundred million, but you're basically aiming for a, uh, like a, a billion dollar exit. Um, almost no matter, you know, I don't care who you're, whether or not it's like really, truly institutional capital, or if it's like, I mean, some kind, sometimes you get angels that are kind of willing to, 
to, to work with these sort of $20 million things. But, um, but the reality is, is that there's a lot more paths to these sort of what venture capitalists would consider mediocre or poor outcomes. Um, to me, it's a decent, it's a pretty damn good outcome. You know, if you, if you build yourself a $20 million business, I think that you're, um, you're very successful and you'll have also um, probably a happier like life. Um, you'll know your employees and you will um, uh, you'll be able to run and, and connect with the business and the customers and so on. Um, but uh, if you have like a heart to heart with your, your VC um, they're, they're, they're not going to be aligned with that interest. And I think that that's, uh, I think that if you're like 90, if you're like, yeah, of course, everybody would like to, to, to build a billion dollar business. Yeah. But if it, if it doesn't work out that way and only 5% of the paths can possibly be successful, then that's, then you're like 95% out of alignment with your, with your, with your partner, with your business partner, who is your venture capitalist. Yep. Yep. And that's just not even, you can get the best VC in the world, but that's just a fundamental aspect of how it works with them having a portfolio and how it, they just, mm -hmm. you know, they're going for the one big win that's going to make their whole portfolio work versus. They have to. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're running a, 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 a business as well. That's, and, but, and the rules of their business are that they have to pursue those. That's the formula. That's the formula that maximizes return. That's the way the math works out for them. But the math works differently for the founder. Right. Because a 20 million, um, heck, a 5 million exit is a life changing sum of money, most likely for an entrepreneur. So it's just fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you have to figure out what your life changing thing is, or what's a good thing for you. And and uh, I mean, like, there's many different layer levels of wealth, you know, like the first time that you're able to like, I don't know, d deal with like having like, you know, your car break down and not have to like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, get like a payday loan. I think that's like a form of wealth. And there's like, you know, 30, 30 different levels there. And, uh, and, you know, wherever you're at, that's kind of like what you got to look at. I right. don't think that most people really could really benefit right. from like having a billion dollar exit, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, what I mean is there's a diminishing return past a certain point, you know, uh, and the, and the diminishing return kind of starts to happen relatively early. Um, what's interesting though, yeah. is that, is that the marketing model sort of like the, um, the, what, what, what VCs want you to believe. And, and there's, they're, I mean, I think that they're, they're completely, um, like good people. Um, but their, their, their sort of content marketing process is, Hey, we're super entrepreneur friendly because we are, and we're entrepreneurs. Um, we're successful and we like want to, uh, help other people be successful. That's all true. Um, and so they publish books and the books say, you know, here's, here's some life lessons from entrepreneurs. And, but the, the main idea is that, and, and you should pursue venture capital. Well, the reason that they're saying that you should pursue venture capital um, is, is because they want to create deal flow for themselves. So it's a content marketing process that they're doing. And, 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 and it's, and, and there's really nobody that is going to tell you don't raise capital that has 
a deal flow incentive to do so, right? Nobody's going to tell you don't raise capital and have a profit motive. Right. <laughs> so you hear a hundred times more people telling you raise capital. Yeah. Right? It, it strikes me. That's like, that's not a conspiracy. <laughs> that's just what it is. That's just the market. It, it, it strikes me a lot in the same regard as uh, like, no one's going to tell you, oh, just eat more vegetables. No, they're going to, you know, it's it's all about like what what's the money maker? You know, buy this stuff, get use this drug, mm-hmm. go. You know, you need this thing. Uh, so there's no money. You know, maybe a few pennies for the farmers or whatever, but there there is no money in recommending that you just eat more vegetables, right? So exactly. it's, the same, it's the exact same paradigm. <laughs> Do this weird diet. You know, here's my book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it is what it is. Yeah. And normalizing that, I guess I would say the book industry for sure, but even things like Shark Tank, you know, like it normalizes, oh, this is just how entrepreneurship works. You have to go, you know, make a prototype and then pitch to a panel of investors who are going to offer you some crappy deal that you then have to take as the entrepreneur. It's almost normalizing that behavior where if you don't know any better, you just assume, oh, that's how entrepreneurship works. Wow, that's a really interesting point. Like I've, I've talked to like kind of um, aspiring entrepreneurs that, that have like sort of a product idea that's not like software. And often, yeah, like the whole Shark Tank thing comes up and it's like, you know, you don't need to do Shark Tank. Like it's not, it's not how you're going to, you know, get this thing off the ground. Like think differently, think a little more strategically. Yeah. Now, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you build this on a shoestring and prototype it and kind of get like, you know, your initial first customers. And that's, you just have to think differently. Um, yeah. But at that, I hadn't thought of the shark tank angle. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's just, definitely I, right. I, it, it annoys me seeing that show, just the, the crappiness of the deals that are offered. And then the fact that this is like mainstream, you know, primetime TV. So then it just becomes normalized that this is how it works that it kind of rubs me the wrong way yeah that's a good point i mean i like watching shark tank uh because at least it's entrepreneurship on tv and 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 innovation you know um i like i like inventing things uh i consider myself an inventor before most other things most other labels and uh and so i like to see that celebrated but it's it, it is interesting the the shark angle of it uh, the fact that, you know, the idea that you have to raise capital. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's the only, you know, the reason is because it's the, there's a profit model. Yeah. Yeah. And actually yeah, what you're saying is right. Though. I mean, it, all things being equal, at least it's, it's glorifying entrepreneurship and it is promoting it in that way. Kind of like, I think of the way that show battle bots kind of made like, yeah. you know, tech cool back in the day. So good for that, but uh, definitely it's 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 a shame if people don't take it upon themselves to investigate more and learn that there's other options to actually doing it bootstrapped instead of uh, going down the whole investment route. Yeah, it's why I kind of feel good about like doing these doing this kind of a talk, um, you know, because it doesn't really fit exactly into like the my you know like normally I like to give you know talks about I don't know content marketing or some kind of SEO stuff or. AdWords or something like that, just just at least generally, so that I can kind of like slip in like my profit motive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but like I feel like talking about the bootstrap thing is just an underserved thing, and I almost feel like to like 
it's just sharing uh like yeah. experience um it's kind of one of my favorite things to talk about because it's really genuine it, it's uh, it comes from a really real place and a point of wisdom that i feel like i have uh it developed over a really long period of time yeah no we're, we're, so Bagley has never raised any money either we're definitely in yeah. your camp you know we same thing totally it, it's also uh you know it's something where you can take this contrarian stance and actually be pretty vocal you know when these vcs are out there on twitter and stuff you can kind of like play devil's advocate and needle them and and, and actually insert yourself in the conversation and provide that al alternative viewpoint which is fun oh yeah you know i haven't done that i'm not uh i like yeah that that seems like a reasonable idea it, i should do that it's fun set up some alerts and tweet deck or whatever you use and uh, just play with it for a week it's actually pretty fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, hey, I wanted to talk about because I'm looking at your deck right now, and by the way, your illustrations are just a hundred. <laughs> I don't know if you hand drew these, but I'm going to try to describe it because uh, this is. I wish it wasn't an audio only podcast right now because what I'm looking at is what appears to be Jabba the Hutt hand drawn with a monocle and a top hat <laughs> to be a VC. <laughs> <laughs> and sh like shooting, shooting the entrepreneur. I don't know what he's doing here. I got to look at what this is. Oh man. Um, yeah, no, they're definitely hand drawn. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, he's giving that's maybe he's giving money. Uh, yeah. That's, the, that's the pension gob. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's, Thanks. We'll, we'll link to this in the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. Um, but can you go through, I'm on slide 29 right now. So like you have this top eight things that you can't do once you take capital. Can you just kind of run through that and tell us, uh, you know, just what, what these things are? Yeah, sure. Uh, we go top eight, uh, eight, eight, eight to one, huh? Okay. So, um, you can not write investor updates and not do board meetings. So that's, that's their number eight, which, um, you know, I think that there's some benefit to doing investor updates and board meetings. Um, but also it's a time suck, you know, it's, it, it, you know, oftentimes you have to do that like monthly. Sometimes you have to do it quarterly. I think it's up to you or it's up to you and your board, um, and your investors, I guess. Um, well, in the like you, like you What's said, that? it's a good practice, but the motive changes. You're now like essentially having to sell internally that mm -hmm. what you're doing makes sense instead of just knowing what you're doing makes sense and, and kind of seeing where you're at. That's right. And I don't necessarily think that the, and this is, this is a bit complicated, a little bit complex, but I think that if you write something let's say you're making a decision. And if you write something down that is a sales perspective on it to sell your investors and your board on it, I think that that might actually mess with your ability to change your mind. Uh, it might also mess with your sort of impartiality. Like, you know, when you're making decisions, like one of the biggest things that, you know, one of the, it's, it's really hard to kind of get outside your own head and take other people's insights um, or to not just sort of become like, like you hire the best people you possibly can. Right. And sometimes it's hard to hear them because you, because everybody kind of wants to please you a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of the, um, uh, you're the boss. Right. And so you have to really, 
not be loud and you have to be really deliberate in how you do communicate and not try to not like take over meetings and stuff like that. And, uh, and so I think that this process of writing a sales document might be kind of bad. That said, thinking strategically and writing that stuff down and sharing that with like your team is obviously, um, is obviously a really big benefit, but again, um, it's going to take like a day, you know, and, and that's like maybe one ninetieth of your time or, you know, one, 50th of your time or something like that in, in a given quarter in a given time period. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I would personally not want to do it. And, uh, but I would have to, it would be like required. Yep. Uh, number seven, uh, you can choose to slow your growth to make sure the company is a place that you want to work. Um, I have personally done this a couple of times, um, you know, but, but you don't have this opportunity. You don't have to like, if you see your culture going in a different direction, you have to like, you can't like put the, you can't slow down growth. You have to grow no matter what, right? And that's, it's just not an option that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number six, spend your time building a better product and acquiring customers rather than building a pitch deck. We definitely talked about this earlier. Um, I do think that pitching for capital is a huge time suck. And by the way, due diligence for acquisitions, same same kind of deal. If you aren't 100% sure that you want to sell right now, kind of going through that process with somebody... Yeah, you know, can can be a time suck and uh, and can really take your eye off of uh, of of real value creation. You know, yep. we're not creating value by creating uh, by pitching for money. And if you're a builder, you know, build. Yep. Um, you can't buy a building. You know, I ha- I own a I own the building that we that we're in, and I'm able to customize it. And I uh, literally, you know, gutted the entire thing. I bought it like it's right next to my house. I literally skateboard through the park to from my like my house is on one side of this park, and my office building is on the other side of the park. And it's a great life experience. And I can uh, I was able to build it and uh, completely transform the outside and transform the inside. This is not something that you can do, um, but it's, um, it definitely allows you to control your work environment and, uh, and you know, also diversify your, your, your diversify things. It's just something you can't do. Yep. And it's pretty awesome to do it. Yep. And, and it's something you can't do because the investors are never going to cut a check and let, yeah. let, let you use their money to do that basically. No, definitely not. Right. It's uh, they want you to lease. Um, and and let's be clear, leasing is more expensive than buying. Yep. Right. So for the same space that I that that, that I currently have, I would pay uh, my mortgage is like eight thousand dollars a month or nine thousand dollars, including, uh, you know, all of the things, um, you know, the you got to pay your association dues and all that stuff. Yep. Um versus about $20,000 a month. Yeah. Which you wouldn't think. You'd think that the lease would be a better deal, but it's um, that's just not the way commercial real estate works. Uh, the rent is, rent is pretty high. Yep. Um, you, and this is, this should, this could be number one. I don't know, but you can't change your salary. Like, like even if you take one investor, right? Like, the one thing that you can't do just unilaterally is to change your own salary. You can't give yourself a $20,000 raise. Um, and that, that's, that's a big deal. You take a 1%, you sell a 1% stake in your company, you lose that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you can't do is you can't earn out, right? Like so this kind of like ties in with the, the change your salary thing. 
you basically are banking 100% on that exit. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to just like take $50,000 a month off the table, put it in my bank account, put it in my investment account, and just kind of like take the pressure off of myself to sell the company. Yeah. Right? You don't have all your eggs in the, ba- in the same basket and you can kind of like get, get to your 2 million or your 5 million or your $10 million or your 500,000, whatever, whatever like those, those sort of incremental points of, uh, of wealth are. Um, well, they don't want their incentive at that point. Like you taking money off the table makes you less hungry, I think. Like, so they want you to be just, you know, your entire like your, your reward is going to be that carrot way out there once you do sell. And so they don't want you to have any piece of that until you get there, basically. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm sitting in my beach house right now uh, that I own. It's my beach house. <laughs> I bought it five years mm-hmm. ago, right? That's not something you can do with a venture back company. It's just not plausible, yep. right? So yep. um, you cannot make really stupid mistakes. And, uh, you'll, you'll get fired. I mean, the, the board will get rid of you. And sometimes you make really stupid mistakes. Ideally you try to like make mistakes that are not, uh, going to be fatal for the company. Um, and you know, obviously, so you can't, nobody can make that bad of a mistake, but you know, yeah, I don't think you want to live in that fear, right? I think you want to be able to just follow what your instincts or not necessarily your instincts, but your wisdom tells you and, and not like, okay, so if I made a horrible mistake six months ago, should I take this risk right now or right, you know, or not? So you don't really have to fear, I guess, being, uh, getting fired ever. Yeah. And I've definitely made plenty of really stupid mistakes. I've learned from, I think, all of my mistakes. It's, uh, I think you also gain the ability to be a little bit more self-reflective, and you can share those things with your company, with with your with your uh, with the leadership in your company. Um, you can kind of teach them the mistakes that you've made and not feel like it's going to be in any way damaging to your situation. Yeah. I, so that was my topic. Yeah, I also think it's it's just the way I think of like politics in a bigger organization. You know, I've worked in a large corporation and it's such a waste of cycles when you're having to convince some middle manager of a reason of why you're doing something instead of just doing it and doing what you know is right. And even if it's wrong, you mm-hmm. needed to learn that lesson and you will incorporate it and be better next time. But if you're ever having to like second yeah. guess your choices based on how it might be interpreted by someone up the food chain, that's just really uh, a poor use of cycles. And so I totally agree. Um, I think we skip. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if it's, if, if you have a boss, you have a boss, um, but you just kind of like, VCs or bosses, you just kind of can't get rid of, right? They're, they're bought in. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's, that's how that is. Yeah. Well, and it's a boss that it's the worst kind of boss though, in the sense that they're not even in the business. They like, they, you know, they, they they're just straight up looking to make money and that's the, that is the motive there. And so it's not like they're even able to offer the insight of someone like a boss who's in the business, who has more seniority and perhaps more experience, you know, with Mm -hmm. that. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think we skipped on number four. Uh, we glossed over it, but it, oh, did I well, it's just choosing not to like you lose the ability to choose not to sell, um, which I think is also, yeah. Oh, how did I miss that? Uh, that's a yeah, big that's one. Yeah, that's a huge one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like 
yeah, you, you don't you don't have to sell. Like you you don't have to you don't have a timeline at all. You can basically um, be like, you know what? Uh, again, I can earn out, and uh, I can continue working on this for as long as I want to. I can start new things. You just don't have to sell. And um, I like make that decision at least once a month because you know you get a lot of calls at some point. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think it's a really good decision. I think it's a fun decision to make, uh, you know, because like if you're, if you have the opportunity to sell and then you choose not to, it's kind of a life validating thing. You're like, well, I actually really like where I'm at and I can't make it better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause if I could, if I could think of making how to make my life better, I would do it. <laughs> And selling isn't it. So, yeah. 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 Cool. Well, all these things, like the, the the analogy that I use, I think you snowboard as well, but it's like when you're bootstrapped, you're essentially like catwalking across the mountain and you have a lot of latitude where you can go at that point and you can choose to like, oh, this isn't the run I want. I'm going to keep going. As soon as you raise money, you're essentially swooshing down the mountain now and you're cone of optionality in terms of where you can go at that point has greatly narrowed to whatever line you now have on that slope. Right. And, and, and mm -hmm. that's essentially like every one of these points that you list on here, it speaks to that about not just in terms of decision-making, but all these other factors about what you can't do now. Um, so it, it's giving up mm -hmm. a great deal of control. Yeah, something like somebody says something along the lines of like intelligence is uh, preservation of options or, or, or something like that, right? Like it's like a chess kind of mm -hmm. deal, right? And so, yeah, creating more options for yourself, I think, is, um, is fundamentally a good idea. Yeah. Cool. Well, so for the people, what advice do you have for people who are bootstrapping? I know you've got some tips in here. Like, what do you recommend? Um, in terms of like just kind of the way you approached it, like just basically treat it like you don't have the money and keep postponing indefinitely the the prospect of raising money or like what, what, what all do you recommend? And we'll go ahead and pause here for a moment to thank our sponsor who makes this podcast possible. Shout out to Pagely. Pagely is the original managed WordPress hosting provider in business for over a decade, working behind the scenes to scale the WordPress presence for some of the world's largest brands. Companies like Disney, Warner Brothers, Comcast, Univision, Meredith, and more all trust Pagely to ensure flawless uptime and security for their WordPress websites. If you have a high traffic or high criticality WordPress site that absolutely cannot go down, visit pagely.com quote for a free consultation. That's P-A-G-E-L-Y dot com slash quote. And now back to our interview. Yeah, so... Um it kind of depends on the phase that they're in. Um, like, and so if, so if you're like early in your phase, like here's the deal is that, is that if you are bootstrapping, one thing that you need to start from, like a good foundation is just the ability to get a job and you're, and getting a confidence level that you can get a job pretty fast or a gig, you know, like mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a job. It can be like, you know, if you have like a consulting kind of thing, you can go on like websites and get get gigs right so basically you need to be able to work on your thing without without a risk uh, you know especially in the very beginning if you're not being completely supported by your 
by your business, right? So that's the first thing. And then the second mm-hmm. thing, of course, is yeah, postpone getting funding and keep postponing it for as long as you can. Keep your cost of living as low as you can possibly get it, um, uh, which, which is, I think, you know, I don't know. I think I feel like it. I feel like it could be different if I had uh, if I had wife and kids when I started. Um, but I don't think that, I think that the answer is, you know, keep it as low as you can. Um, the other thing is that, um, you are going to have ideas and you do not need to execute on all of them. In fact, you should execute on, you need to evaluate each idea and be sure, like you should basically fold most ideas that you have. I call them ideas are like poker hands. Um, you really should fold uh, the majority of them and you will have another one. Um, and the way that I uh, evaluate ideas, well, the way that I evaluate ideas in the context of having an existing company is a little bit different than the way that I evaluate evaluate ideas in the context of not having one. But if you're, so when you're bootstrapping, you're trying to figure out what you want to do. Um, you want to look for something that can be prototyped quickly and that can deliver uh, cash flow immediately, meaning you don't need like some kind of, you know, like you're not building YouTube from bootstrap. That's not going to be a thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, so, so don't do any social network stuff or, you know, like if it's, if your idea is that the profit model is advertising back profit model, you, you don't, don't do that. Do you find a different idea? Um, beware of anything that requires a critical mass of any kind. Um, and then, uh, and then also choose ideas that you are particularly well suited to execute on. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a pre-existing domain knowledge of it, but it, it should mean that the, uh, the core, the core of the idea is, is something that you, um, that you're particularly well suited to. For example, for me, I like generally look for things. I happen to be really good at kind of like, um, like uh, it's like kind of like data imagination. Like I don't really want to call it data science because it's it's a bit different than that. It's almost like data on data. Uh, innovation or something like that. I can kind of see the matrix of how data fits together. It's mm-hmm. a, um, a weird skill. Uh, most people don't have it. So in a way, I'm kind of like ideally suited to execute on ideas that are around that. And um, D- how did you discover that superpower of yours? Or is there a way that you think people can systematically arrive at that, at knowing that? Oh, man. Um, well, um, I I, uh, I have some ideas, some ideas uh, about how, how to, uh, because it's not like necessarily studying data science or something like that is going to get you there. It's different. Um, and I have thought about it quite a bit because I've, I don't see it uh, very often. Um, but I think that I think that I have come up with a bit of a process and it and it's and it's a little bit complicated and I will one day like make a presentation on it uh, to like simplify mm-hmm. it. But I think it's about, like I think that the first step to it is to always be estimating things in your mind, like constantly build the build the build into your mind the ability to instantly estimate something or estimate really big things really well, really fast, because uh, the. And then, and then, just basically, always apply that. Like, no matter what problem you're going into, estimate it first, uh, 
see if you're right. And if you're wrong, I mean, if the data doesn't add up, you have to figure out whether or not you were wrong or whether or not there's something weird about the data, right? Nice. So I think that's kind of like the very first step, but it takes a bit of time to, to sort of build that discipline or if it's built into you, good. It's sort of, I, I feel like it's built into me, but I also think that it's one of those things that nobody teaches you. Like it's like, it doesn't come from math. It doesn't come from, from um, anything that I've ever heard in like data science stuff. But I think that that's the key constantly be gut checking and that, and then that'll kind of get you, get you there. Gut checking and then uh, back testing to see whether you are right. Yeah. Just, Interesting. But you have to be able to do it really fast, right? Like, so you can kind of like my kids, I play this game with my kids because I want to teach them how to like do that type of thing. And so we, um, we play a game at dinner very often. Um, and that is to like estimate the population of countries or cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you to kind of like, you don't know <laughs> the population of Turkmenistan. Yeah. Right. But you, you eventually can build an idea as to where it is and what its population density is likely to be and that type of thing. Um, and, uh, and so there's a whole bunch of different domains where you could kind of um, try to like learn to estimate, but this is just something that we do randomly. And, uh, and I would recommend doing that type of thing, building your estimation skills, your instant estimation skills. That's awesome. I just read a book recently. It's called Super Thinking. Uh, it's the guy, Gabriel, the founder of DuckDuckGo search engine. And it's him uh-huh. and his wife basically trying to wrap 300 mental models into a narrative form and then teach just kind of this toolbox and give, you know, they categorized them and then kind of came up with little anecdotes that make them memorable. And it was a really cool project, but I love what you're saying that like just kind of strengthening that muscle of being able to quickly assess a situation and then back test it and see if you were right. It kind of, you develop that almost like, I don't know, precognition, if you want to call it or some kind of that mm-hmm. capability. Uh, what a fascinating thing to work on. It's, it's cool that you're practicing that with your kids. Yeah, it's kind of like this. Uh, it's like when you're like evaluating your ideas too, right? You you basically want to like const- just really quickly go through the feasibility of it, because um, quite honestly, like with anything that's like an idea uh, or like um, you know when we do uh, design iterations, design when we prototype stuff for mm-hmm. products, we want to um, spend as little time on our ideas as we possibly can um, before we share it with others, and it's a similar thing with like like a product idea or a business idea, you want to um, sort of do that quick estimation on what, how the profit model is going to work out and that type of deal. Uh, how, what's the market size? Just yeah. estimate it. Just, just estimate it and get better and better at, at estimating those, uh, what the size of the market is and you know, how, like what's your conversion rate going to be and all that stuff. You estimate those things. And then oftentimes you can discard the idea because it's not a feasible profit model. Um, and that's great. Because then you don't spend any more time thinking about it and getting attached to it. Because you, you know, you have to really be. When you're the only one making the decisions, when you're like, when you have, when you can chart your own course through the world, you have to be very careful about what you convince yourself of. Yeah. Yep. You know? Yeah. You're, you're almost doing real time Monte Carlo simulation. You know, you're smoke testing all these ideas very quickly and just discarding them and then picking the one that actually passes yeah. the smoke test. And okay, let, let's actually look at that one. That's super interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's and it's just like rapid arithmetic, you know, like using percentages and probabilities and and just multiplication. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's um, it's a it's a, if you ever wonder what math does for you, it's like this is the you know like calculus not so useful doing rapid uh, <laughs> rapid <laughs> rapid uh, smoke testing or math whatever, yeah. with fractions and probabilities quite useful, extremely useful. Nice. All day, every day, probably 30, 40 times a day, <laughs> you know, and I don't even think about the frequency that I and do. And that's all self-taught or did you ever read something that led you down that path? I realized that it's probably a difference maker for me after sort of trying to think about what, why am I good at data? Mm-hmm. You know, like people have asked me that often and I initially had no answers and I still don't have like all the answers, but, um, I think that that's kind of, um, that's part of it. Cool. Cool. Any other bootstrapping tips? Mm, Yeah, I had these other ones. Let's see. Um, you know, one of the things that you might want to look at is when, when you're looking at one of those ideas, when you're evaluating an idea, consider building a bit of a consulting model into it. Um, I think that a consulting model is like not, not great. I don't like it, uh, you know, because it doesn't make you money while you sleep. But it certainly helps out when you're bootstrapping because you can always dial it up and dial it back. So if there's a if there's a possibility to have that in there, and when you're doing consulting, you know, on a product, you know, if you have like a quote unquote solution instead of a really well built out product, um, you can. I mean, it allows you to kind of build the solution into a product as you go. You're basically supplementing the like weaknesses of your product with like human stuff for right. a while. Um, but, uh, but it, it just, it just sort of allows you to like activate like sales instead of marketing. Um, and, and, and the reality is, is that you, uh, if you have a product that you're the only one that knows how to use, uh, you're just going to get paid more than you would elsewhere. Right? Like when, when we had velocity scape, the product web scraper plus was good enough for like 50% of our customers. So 50% of people would buy it and never really need to talk to us. And the other 50% basically needed us to build them a solution and then they could operate it after that. And, um, and so what, what happened was we would have people, uh, and we were able to, we were able to charge like basically like, you know, $250 an hour or so for the consulting and I was, you know, paying people like thirty bucks an hour, so it was, uh, it was, it was quite a profitable consulting model. Um, and you know, and we could all, we had so much room that you know, if we needed to close a deal, we could just, you know, make it happen, right? Like just drop the price yeah. and close more. Yeah, you basically subsidize the development of your product. You're getting paid to build your product at that point. Instead, it's the opposite of raising mm-hmm. investment, basically. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that, that people, uh, are always concerned with when they're starting out is that like, they're like, everybody's going to know that I'm small. I've got to put some background noise on here, so, you know, so that it sounds like a real office. And, uh, I don't think that that's a big yeah. deal. Um, I think that we're kind of often afraid of our own shadows. I think that people like to, I think that people like, I think there's a lo- a pretty big market of people that like to deal with a small business because they know that they have 
that they're going to get one-on-one attention. And so uh, I think you can use that to your advantage more than feel like it's in any way. I used to, uh, you know, it's like somebody's calling and they're asking for like, can I talk to your support or whatever? And I'm like, hold on, let me transfer <laughs> you. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'm just kidding. I'm your support guy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you just got to gotta kind of get over that anxiety because it's really not a thing. But you all, everybody feels like it is especially if you used to work for a big company. Any other tips that are burning a hole in your... I have a few more tips. I can just go over them really quickly. Internet is more important than electricity. It straight up is. Like when, if internet ever goes out in our office, like everybody just is done working. Uh, But the electricity, yeah, yeah, fuck it. Like the electricity can go out. Um, So uh, there's a few ways. Like if you're running this thing out of your house, uh, it's just like, these are just like really like core level to like really just like the most straight level straight forward tip that i can possibly give you you can get multiple drops of like you know um uh like if you have like cox or or you know like that type of internet you can get multiple drops um you can also get a backup internet that's like lte um and you can um and and here's the trick this is like just straight up from like a dude you need to make the distance between your inbound modem and uh, like your inbound connection from the outside of your house to the modem. You need to make that basically zero feet. And the reason you need to do that is number one, it'll improve the reliability. But number two, when you get the people to come out, time is of the essence. And they're going to basically, when they see this happening, uh, they're going to they're gonna try to blame like the cables inside your house. And so you need to make it so that like you're basically connected right there so that so that that first level tech support guy can't can't brush you off. The other thing is, is when that first level tech support guy comes, you need to like have like your um, like you just need to set up uh, your laptop and have a ping constantly going. When he sees that you have a ping thing coming, he's going to call the second or third level support guy. And so what will end up happening is you're going to get like you're going to get your problem fixed like like days you're just faster, chopping out okay? all the troubleshooting you're um, basically like zooming ahead to the, the the nth step of technical support it sounds like and you're establishing sort of like your technical superiority in a sense right you're basically like look dude here's here's my here's my trace routes and my you know in my pings you know like look see how it's flaky right here see how it drops packets every once in a while just say literally what i just said right now say that literally those words <laughs> you'll get escalated. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is that you can get what's called a multi WAN load balance router. It sounds complicated. They're like 250 bucks or something. But what this allows you to do is have multiple connections that you'll either load balance or fail over to. I didn't learn about them for quite some time, but it's how you, you they're not very expensive. You, this is how you get multiple drops. And basically what happens is one thing can go down and then you have another one. And then the other, the other thing is, is that if you have cable modems, you need to replace them no matter what, every 12 months, do it religiously. It doesn't matter whether it's dropping packets, just basically just do it because, um, this is analog electronics. That's what cable modems are based on. It's, uh, yeah. um, it, 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 it's, it's, it, these, those type of components, are designed to break down over time. It's like capacitors and crap like that. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer, you know, so um, just, just this just slide is gold. I'm going <laughs> to link to it in the show notes because man, what just a, a veteran guru, like just, I would imagine this becomes way more important too. When it's, if it's just you, you run to the coffee shop and you keep working. But when you've got 12 employees yeah. now in yep. your garage, and your home internet goes down yeah. and you better have some kind of backup because yeah. that's 12 salaries that are just idling right there. Yeah. 
it's it sucks. It's horrible when it happens. And uh, yeah, I had like 16 people in my backyard. Uh, and yeah, every once in a while that internet would go out and, you know, obviously we fixed it and um, got like three, three drops yeah. and all kinds of things. So cool. Um, let's see. Yeah. Don't try it. Don't spend time being big. Let's uh, number nine. Um, yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting one, you know, because I know that you guys, uh, Pagely are, um, like a virtual yep. team, right? Like you're remote, you're in Lisbon, Josh is in Tucson. And I, I think that you're, everybody that you have is, uh, can yep. be wherever they want. And, uh, and so this is an interesting thing is the minute that you hire your first employee and they come into work, uh, is the minute that you lose some freedom. So in a way, the first physical employee that you hire, you need to, you, you got to weigh that, right? Like, cause you do have a, potentially a really good thing going and you're going to lose a good bit of freedom to some degree. You're going to lose a good bit of freedom forever, but, um, but at least until you have when you have like 10 employees, the company kind of can't, yeah, sorry, the company will kind of run mm-hmm. itself when you're gone. Um, I mean, I've, I'm obviously out at my, my beach house. I can take a vacation for potentially months and everything is fine. Um, but it's a pretty mature company at this point. Um, yeah. The, just, you just have to keep that in mind. I don't know how exactly that works if employees are virtual from my perspective, virtual employees, I, I don't know if I'm a good enough communicator. I feel like I want to be able to be in the same space with somebody. I, I really would like to know how, I think that I want Josh to like give that presentation about how to run like a uh, virtual organization. Cause um, I think it's a totally different, totally different animal, totally different skill set. but it certainly has some really attractive yeah, qualities. In that you get we'll definitely be talking at some point. I mean, I can send you whenever we hit it with an episode specifically on that topic, but there is absolutely like a culture and a, a mindset that has to exist where you're pushing the decision-making to the edges and you're like far more tolerant of mistakes. Communication has to be, you know, you have to compensate for the fact that you're not in person. So therefore there has to be like pretty nice regular check-ins and, and good like flat structure and everyone needs to be able to talk to everyone. So there's definitely some things um, uh, we can, we can share in that regard uh, at some point. Yeah. I'll bet that you have like the same sort of, you know, um, what, what gritty <laughs> tips that I have for like <laughs> cable modems on like how to yeah. use Slack, you know, like I use Slack probably like, in in a way that you would probably laugh at you know it's like why are you how can you possibly keep on top of all this communication it's like well because i walk over to people and say hi (laughs) and basically rely on that a lot so yeah i bet bet you guys know how to use virtual communication super well yeah we're we're, um i I guess i have one last one yep uh when when you okay, here's how you know when you need to hire. When you can't fit more hours into your day, hire the first person. Hire hire the person to do the twenty hours a week of stuff that you can hire for the least amount of money, right? Because you know, like people would always tell me, you know, you need to hire like an assistant or whatever, a personal assistant. I'm like, yeah, to like do some coding or something, right? <laughs> like, can I can I get like a personal assistant that'll like write some code or 
you know, do some sales or whatever. But the, the, the thing is, is that you just sort of like write down all the things that you do and that you do, cause you're going to pick up, you're the entrepreneur, you're going to pick up all the things and, uh, and you just need to find the, you're not going to actually be able to find 40 hours a week of stuff that you do. So you just need to find 20 hours a week of stuff that you do and then hire that person, hire, right. hire those things. That's the lowest hanging fruit. That's, that's yeah. kind of like, the, it's just an iterative thing too. Cause you're constantly going to be working and you're probably going to be working 60 hours and, so you just got to find that that clump of stuff that uh, that is like like the lowest cost clump of stuff, and that's so I would that's what I would know. absolutely attest to this, and I would say this this factor is at work for sure for the entrepreneur, but even within an organization, I started at Pagely, you know, I was employee number eight, and was handling all sales and marketing, and I think the the a tip that I learned early on through the Kauffman Foundation course was to imagine the org chart even if you're just one person, picture like the roles that you're performing and map out that org chart. So you understand that, okay, I'm wearing a hat of a marketer right now. I'm wearing the hat of, you know, the account exec or the SDR or the onboarding person, you know, picture all those hats and then be conscious of it because you're just inevitably going to be cleaving off those roles eventually. And so it's helpful to like imagine it that Mm -hmm. way and be very deliberate when you're putting on the content blog hat for that, that, for whatever you're doing. Um, I, I mean, that was just a super valuable yeah. visualization for me. Once I had that, it was like, okay, I'm in this mode and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that the SDR role is what's taking up the most time. So therefore that is going to be the first thing we cleave off and hire for. So. Yeah. And you know, right now you're the, in, yeah. in the podcasting role, yeah. right? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> hey man. Oh, so we'll, so we'll start, we'll wrap it up here. I do have one just quick rapid fire set of questions that I ask all the guests. Um, what is one book okay. that has profoundly affected you? Uh, I think that probably my favorite book uh, that's had the most lasting impact is uh, how to win friends and influence people. Nice. What about what is one tool or hack? It could be a software application, could be just like some like cool hack that you have that saves you time, money, headaches. Hmm. Cool hack. Um I like don't think that it's a hack. But um, if you are, uh, if you have a website and you're not doing split testing um, using like, um, you know, a variety of split testing tools, VWO is the one that we use, um, then I can't explain how much, how much money you're probably leaving on the table. It's, it's like, uh, and, and I run across people not doing split testing, you know, even in your buying process, like that, that's like, that's like one of the Mm -hmm. first things that I would, um, that I would invest in. And one of the last things that I would like ever not do. It's super, super test all the things VWO, sorry, VWO for those people listening, that's visual website optimizer. We'll link to that tool. That's a great suggestion for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I've, you know, made millions and millions of dollars like on that. It's super valuable. All right. What about one piece of music or musical artist that speaks to you lately? 
Well, I'm at the beach, so I listen to a lot of Bob Marley while I'm here. It's uh, and and I don't necessarily do it because I'm like super into Bob Marley. But what it does is it makes it so that every time, I, so that I can basically return to the beach whenever I want to. Like I just constantly play it, and like I play it to like the extent that like my kids like it filters into them. So you can just like take this one genre of music and be like, I'm kind awesome. of at the beach right You're now. Classically conditioning, yeah, that it's that's an amazing back. life hack right there. Very cool. Um, All right. So this is a question I stole from Peter Thiel. What is, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I'm kind of a, I don't know how few, you know, but I'm kind of a um, bit of a natural Zen guy, you know, like I, uh, like, like my employees would tell you that I always say this, like, well, it either is or it isn't. Uh, I, I say it all the time. It's either, it either, either is, or it isn't. <laughs> There's not much you can change about it. Or, um, I'll give you a weird example. Cause I was just surfing yesterday. Uh, we had some pretty big surf. It was like, uh, like these, uh, seven foot rollers. It was high tide <clears throat> and high tide waves are real fast. And so I was, I was out there and I was like, um, Oh, look at this great wave. I saw it coming in. So I paddled, I paddled, I sprinted as hard as I could and I missed the wave. It rolled under me. It was too fast. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I made it a ways in and then I, I turned back around and I look out on the horizon and there's like this friggin' like, like this shadow, this giant shadow coming at me. And it's like this enormous enormous, probably 12 foot wave. And it's just, it's like 500 feet out and I'm like, Oh shit. So I paddle as hard as I can and I'm paddling like it's like a sprint, right? Like I have to, because here's what happens is if I can get up that wave and over the wave, then it will, uh, then I make it. And if I don't, it'll just trap me in this, in this, um, it's called getting trapped inside. So I'd get just like in this wash area and it would push me back and I just get super tired. So I'm sprinting, I'm sprinting and I'm like, I'd already kind of been spent because I chased down that other wave and I missed it. So I'm sprinting. And like, there's like this one to two second window where you either make it to the peak of the wave or the damn thing just crashes on you. And in this case, the damn thing just, just crashed on me. And I looked up at the wave and I'm like, you know, fucking wave and it's crashing on me and I'm like getting held underwater. And of course I'm completely out of breath and I, you know, it's holding me under and I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's the ocean, man. You can't blame the ocean. It just does what it does. And then I surfaced and I'm just like, cause I've had this whole thought underneath the water and I get up to the, the surface and I'm like, <laughs> just laughing at myself because it's just such a fucking Zen thing to say. And it makes no sense, but it's, it's perfectly philosophically right. <laughs> Dig it. <laughs> and you know, and I got trapped in the inside and paddled nice. out and everything's fine. And because if you did it, we, if you did it, we wouldn't so, know. I, you know, I we don't know never, where that shit comes from. Yeah, we would <laughs> never have this advice is. if you didn't. So it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, sometimes the waves happen yep. and you get crushed. Cool. All right, last question, man. What if you had a time machine to go back to your 20-year-old self and give yourself any advice maybe before, I don't know, that actually you started, that was even... No. So let's say you're 19 year old self before you started these companies. Uh, what would you tell yourself if you could give yourself any bit of advice? Yeah. I mean, I made all kinds of mistakes and I think that like, um, that 
Um, but, but I don't, I don't actually have any regrets, which I feel like I would have told myself, I, I'm not very hard on myself. And so I want to like, I want to be like really critical of my past self in some way, but, but I'm not because I know what I knew. And I know that I always followed what I felt like was right. You can and just good. say, good job, dude. You're going to have a good life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> that sounds really fucked up. I should say something like, um, loyalty is really important and you should value it more than almost anything else. Okay. That's good. I, I, I know for sure when I was 20, I thought that there were things that were like maybe more important than loyalty but over time like that actually ends up being like a super valuable thing um yeah cool definitely that would be that would be like that would be something that i didn't know that i learned over time very cool awesome all right well the very last thing just because we said we'd mentioned it at the beginning the segue jousting i will let you describe (laughs) (laughs) because guess what i i still had so i actually i'm gonna let you describe it (laughs) Okay, so segue jousting. Every year, I do something kind of crazy for my birthday, and this this probably started twelve years ago or whatever. And uh, and so we were sort of brainstorming at some point, and one of the things we came up with was, why don't we rent some segways and then joust them? <laughs> and so actually, what happened was the first couple of years, you know, everybody it's it's like actually a little bit less dangerous than you'd think. Most of the time, everything works out. We basically made like these jousting poles that were, you know, it was like uh, like a boxing glove over the end of like a painter's uh, pole with like a yoga mat wrapped around it. And, you know, and it, it, nobody actually ever got actually impaled. And uh, a couple of times people got ran over by like segues, but really they're not that heavy. And so everything's fine. Um so the first two years, everything was fine. And then the, the third year, because this, the, the, the place that we were renting them from just wouldn't rent them to us anymore for whatever reason. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the, uh, I had to rent them from San Diego and drive them over. Well, I had the extra time to figure out how to upgrade their speed. So when we'd get them from like this place we were renting them from, they'd, they'd max out at 10 miles an hour. And so I got them, uh, when I got them from San Diego, I, I figured out how to make them go 12 and that extra speed became sort of dangerous. A couple people, including yourself got, uh, got some injuries that year. So it was, it was, and, and I didn't even know until like at, way after the fact, I was like, why, why did people get injured this year? <laughs> to be totally clear though, I would do it again in a heartbeat. That was freaking amazing. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a good time. We I mean, I can't believe that you broke your rib and never said a damn thing about it, except for like two months later, you're like, yeah, man, you broke my rib. And I was like, what the, f-? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how is that even possible? We had body armor on. I don't know. It was like, we had padded pugil sticks and body armor and it, yeah. yeah, but, uh, definitely broke, broke two ribs. Um, and yeah, it just healed eventually, but yeah. Uh, I'm two post- ribs. I didn't know you broke two ribs. I, I, I apologize. The bottom two. I mean, we were just like warming up. It wasn't even like, right. We were just yeah. fucking around. It wasn't even that like, 
I mean, there was some dude who got like way, it looked way more serious. The thing that he, whatever, I forget the guy's name, but he, he got in one that just seemed way more serious, but, uh, mm-hmm. just caught me just wrong, but no, dude, it was amazing. Incredible. Like I would do it again. It was like just American yeah. gladiator style, badass. So yeah. very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Hey man, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure casting up, enjoy the beach house. And, uh, thanks for being a speaker at Pressnomics. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's great. Love, love, love hanging out. Cool, man. All right. Take care. All right, later. You've been listening to the Pressnomics podcast. Get transcripts, show notes, links, and more for this and all other episodes at pagely.com forward slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe to receive future episodes via your favorite podcast listening platform. The Pressnomics podcast is supported in part by Pagely the original managed WordPress hosting provider, helping the world's largest brands run their WordPress presence at scale. Visit pagely.com forward slash quote to get your free quote today.